Right, chapter 2. Peter, why don't you read verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> We're going to just read story by story. I think it's easier. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, <clears throat> where Jesus changes water to wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So why is Jesus' first miracle something so ordinary, commonplace? I mean, nobody's dying. It's not crucial that they have wine. This family was probably a friend of theirs since the mom knew them. Mm-hmm. And it would have been mm-hmm. a great this is, embarrassment. This is Jesus' family, mm-hmm. his extended family. Yeah, it would have been a great embarrassment to the family if they hadn't had It's wine. true. Dishonor. Is that important to us? Saving someone's face? In Asian cultures, it's extremely important. But in, in Caucasian cultures, and uh, especially in America, I think, it's, there's, it's like tough. <laughs> Just go eat it. So it's probably more significant for them since they're more... They would get the, the, big, the big how important it was. But suppose God had our philosophy, or Jesus had our philosophy... And the reason I'm saying that is, I think of Ellen White's statement, nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. If it bothers us, it bothers him. Regardless of how trivial it may be, regardless of how insignificant it is, and regardless of maybe we're just making up more than we need to. But if it concerns our peace, it concerns his. Well, what does that tell us about salvation? 
that that's very important to us, even if we don't realize it. And thus, it's even okay. Important. So, a parallel point might be a parallel point might be that salvation. Sometimes we don't think we need it, and we do, okay. or we don't know about it. Or we don't know about it. Okay, that's one possibility. Anything else? When it says uh, ceremonial washing, is that talking about ritual? The water they used for like the feet? No. No foot washing in the. In, oh, Jesus made foot washing ritual, yeah. but but it wasn't ritual. I mean, it was a custom that you did that as an honor to your guests. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't ritual. It wasn't ceremonial. And what they were doing with ceremonial jars? <laughs> That's a good question. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, there's six of them. There's not seven. Seven's a perfect number. Six tends to be a human number. So this is a pretty good size wedding. Then if we have six stone jars, each holding... And those jars, keep 20. in mind, those jars are about like here. 20 to 30 gallons. Yeah. Yeah. Times six. So it's a good size wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus hasn't filled them all. He's not going to make, he's going to make sure they have enough wine. I think this was Jesus' way of sort of initially announcing the new covenant to the people because if this was ceremonial jars for the water and he's taking the human sort of thing of the Moses' way of doing things so you wash with water. And he's turned into wine, which later Jesus says is his blood. Yeah. He's saying that the water is not enough, so he's giving him his blood. Okay, and, and you picked up something that is a theme of John's Gospel. Turn to First John. I believe it's five. First John five, verse six. Yes, this is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. The Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three things agree. This is, this is a clincher for me of a study I did, and I, we covered that. I think before you started coming, um, but but many moons ago, <laughs> we covered the blood when we dealt with Leviticus, and I did a complete biblical study, which actually my study originally started in the Gospel of John, because one night I couldn't sleep, and so I started meditating on the Gospel of John, and, and this verse had always puzzled me, what it meant. And uh, I began to realize that John collects stories of water and wine, and, and also about blood in John 6. And then halfway through, the t- he moves from that to knowledge and truth. And, and so that's what convinced me that the blood represents the truth about the nature and consequences of sin. Um, that's very tied to that. 
And to me, this, these verses really clinch that because right in the middle about the discussion of the water and the blood and the Spirit um, is the Spirit is the one that testifies for the Spirit is the truth. Mm-hmm. So you're going to find Spirit, water, blood. In fact, chapter 1, you have the water baptism, the Jordan River, and you have the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. So you have the water and the Spirit. Now you have the water, water and the blood. So, so you pointed out a very significant component of, of what John is trying to do in his gospel, and we can see how he unfolds this as we move along. That's beautiful, because each testify, look at verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Yes. And then it's even more beautiful in the Geneva. For there are three which bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These are the one. You know that that's a a verse that's later added? It was added in Erasmus. How how do they want to put it? Erasmus was compiling the New Testament and creating the first critical edition of the New Testament, pretty much. That meant collating all the texts and making sure everyone is recognized. And he came to this verse, which was in the Latin, and he didn't have any Greek manuscripts that supported it. And he went back trying to trace it, and it was added by the Latin church. As a, as a key text for the Trinity. They had to have a key text for the Trinity, and so they put this in there. And, and, the, and he had a real uproar on his hands because... Nobody was appreciating the fact that he was going to leave it out of his New Testament. So finally he said, if you can find me one Greek manuscript that has it, I will put it in. So they found one. They created it. Wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, that verse, that, I wish it had been originally put in there, but <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, it's just not in any of the Greek manuscripts. But it, it did wind up in the King James Version of the Bible because of, of Rasmus said, okay, you have it in your Greek manuscript. He had no way to prove that they had added it, but we know now from careful research that it was obviously clearly added by the people who insisted on it being there. But then you back up one in verse six, and we see that in the Geneva verse 6 says, This is that Jesus Christ that came by water and blood. Uh-huh. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is that spirit that beareth witness yeah. for that spirit is yeah. truth. And, and who's the, why is Jesus called the Word? Back to John 1. He embodies everything that it is. Well, he used the Word too in creation. Okay, John is definitely tying Jesus to the crea- as the creator. By him was everything made, and without him was not anything made that was made. What else? Why else is he the Word? The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and what? And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. So moving on, 
from his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was indeed given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So the verse is right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just not original. We the the they're bearing witness to who God is. This is this is all about the truth about God and and the the truth about the nature of sin because that is so important to our understanding of God. So so we're we're in very good hands with John. He's going to lead us all the way through to the culmination of where the blood becomes significant. So anything else from this chapter? I would like to back up to to the where I was leading by questions. Mm. Is doing a miracle like this necessary for our salvation? Most of my students will tell me that Jesus came to die for our sins so that we could be saved. Period. But even the reformers taught that Jesus saved us by his life as well as by his death. So everything that Jesus did is for our salvation. Is there a text to support that? Try John 17. Like I said, we're in good hands. All questions this book raises will be answered by it. Jesus spoke these words. After Jesus spoke these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. This is before his death. I finished the work, which was to what? To give eternal life. His life gives us eternal life. So I would suggest that this is a very important, integral part of the plan of salvation, this miracle, because of what it reveals about God. God is not a minimalist. We are minimalists. Whatever the minimum it takes uh, for us to have eternal life, we'll accept that. Okay, so Jesus died. Boom, we have eternal life. Uh, that's the minimalist perspective. Whatever we have to do to, you know, obey God is minimalist. Do we really have to do that? Why do we have to do that? Uh, let's see how close we can get to the edge uh, and do the minimum. Uh, we do it in our workday world. You know, we try to do the minimum to get by. Uh, I find students do that in classes a lot, doing the minimum to get by. We're, we're usually minimalist. God is a maximalist. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. 
that's eternal life. An abundant life, a full life, a rich life. And God isn't just content doing a minimalist checklist. Well, this is absolutely necessary for salvation, but this over here is not. I'm not going to do that. No, he's going to fill those jars to the brim and overflowing with wine. Making sure we have more than enough. And since I can't even drink grape juice, I mean, I, I drink a little bit in, in communion, but um, it has too high a content of sugar for me. For me, that's just amazing <laughs> that, that the Creator would give everybody at the feast so much wine. This is a lavish God. This is the God of the parable of the prodigal son who just throws him a party for coming home in rags and stinking like a pigsty. Another interesting thing displaying a God of order is uh, where in verse 8 he says, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Let's check this out, make sure it's good. To the master of the banquet. Well, who can better know this miracle has happened than he? He's the one worrying, stewing. Mm -hmm. I'm losing face. And the, the awesome thing is he didn't know where it came from. No. <laughs> <laughs> where did this come from? This is the good stuff. Where did this come from? Yeah. Actually, he, he isn't the one stewing, is he? He's the one um, in charge, but letting all his peons under him worry about the wine. And you have kept the good wine until now. I have a question, and it probably seems very redundant, um, about the being well drunk. A lot of people use this verse to say, oh, it was real wine because they were drunk. My question is, is because I've heard the other, uh, they were full, they had drunk a lot, they had, you know, had enough to eat with their meal. It wasn't that they were intoxicated. Is there anything... I would guess... Have? I would guess, since Jews to this day drink real wine, I would guess that it's the way it's worded here uh, after the guests have become drunk. Because he's saying that in general, at least speaking, when we have a wedding, uh, and when we have a feast like this, people get drunk. That version actually uses the word intoxicated. Yeah. But then Ellen White says there's no way he would have made... No, no, wine. he wouldn't have. We have to assume that. Yeah, the so verse can't like, tell us that. Right. Because normally they would get drunk. Uh -huh. Possibly they had, were just on the verge of getting drunk when they ran out. And then Jesus comes in with this superior wine that's unlike anything they've ever drunk, and they don't get drunk on it. Yeah. So I, I think we have to go by, uh, by uh, just Jesus' general general principle that Jesus does Jesus is reenacting creation here right mm -hmm. he's the creator that's John has established that in chapter 1 and this is going to tell us what Jesus does when he does creation work he's not going to create something dead right so i i think based on that we can assume that he gave 
regular grape juice. But it was it was superior. It was heavenly grape juice. Mm-hmm. So you'll have at the banquet in heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I get to drink it all. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be some little <laughs> glass. Thank you. I was just because, yeah, it gets misconstrued a lot. Well, it's a it, it's a good point that you bring up there because uh, in I remember going through the one of the uh, strong dictionaries, mm-hmm. and uh, so for wine, there's several for the one Hebrew word. There's several different Hebrew words are back. One of the there's there's two Greek words. There's winos, winos, from which we get wine, and there's. Um, and I forget the other Greek word, but I think there's two Greek words, and then there's two Hebrew words, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, zakar, I think it's one, not Zakar. Yeah, Zakar, yeah. and um, Tirosh. Tirosh is sweet wine. And Zakar is beer. Ancient beer. It, it has a counterpart in Akkadian, like Zakru. Interesting, uh, though, it does refer to fermentation. Yeah, yeah. So it's the joy juice. It's the joy juice of the gods uh, in Babylonia. Joy juice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They used it. To, used it regularly to Zachary, uh <laughs> regularly to uh, celebrate anything. Mm-hmm. It's in a new Elish. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and and then what do you do? Of course, with Deuteronomy, take the wine and buy strong. Uh, take the tithe and buy strong drink and rejoice before the Lord. A strong drink there is beer. It's Zakar. Yeah, interesting, though, because <clears throat> everything that we do is primarily about the development of character. And what another method of developing character that a God so great could take a knowing that the fermented drink would cause this euphoria and then saying, now here's another piece. Can you only take what you need without getting drunk mm-hmm. as another methodology for building character? So thank you for bringing that stuff up. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that God, you know, you, you have to, we have to, to, to keep in mind that there was no way to, pres- there was a limited way to preserve wine without fermentation. They could do it. I think they had to dig a hole in the ground and, and put everything in that hole, seal it up. Um, or skins. Skins wouldn't keep it from fermenting, I don't think. Concentration is another. Leslie Harding gives about four of them. Oh, it does. Yeah. Um, so there was limited ways they could keep it from fermenting, but um, it's still a challenge, much more so than today. And keep in mind, if you leave a glass of grape juice out on the deck mm-hmm. and come back to it two weeks later, it's going to taste like vinegar. It's not going to taste like nice sweet wine. Um, and that's that's the kind of thing probably that it tasted like. Um, so, but it, what is interesting is God, instead of God being real strict and saying no fermentation, like he preferred to say, I think that would have been his preference. He allowed them to have a law of the Nazarite where this is special if you're really dedicated to me. 
You're not going to drink this stuff. In fact, they didn't drink grape juice. Why? Because sugar ferments in the stomach. Well, let's uh, go to 13, verse 13. 13. Uh, John, you want to go ahead and read down to verse 22? Sure. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those selling cattle and sheep and doves, and the money brokers and their seats. After making a whip of ropes, he drove out all those with the sheep and cattle out of the temple, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Then he said to those selling the doves, Take these things away from here, and stop making the house of my father a house of commerce. The disciples recalled that it is written, The zeal for your house will consume me. Therefore, in response, the Jews said to him, What sign can you show us that you are doing these things? Jesus replied to them, Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. The Jews then said, This temple was built in forty-six years. How can you raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body, when, though he was raised up from the dead, his disciples recalled that he used to say this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had spoken. This is a dramatic shift from changing water into wine into a feast. I think the key here is verse 21. When he was talking about the temple, he was referring to his body. Mm -hmm. Instead of being like the church building, it was the religion, sort of, in a way. It was, it, it was the body of believers, the community of faith. But they degraded that and made it about uh, human wants and needs rather than about God. And you notice it says in the temple, it doesn't specify in the court. So apparently, things had filled the court, overflowing up into the actual temple. Rather close to the holy place. Probably not in the holy place. Because the temple in Jerusalem had many spaces around the, that part. Um, it had the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles. It had all these courts. So it's probably that they had filled all the courts with this commerce. Uh, it's interesting, I think John is the only gospel writer who says that Jesus drove out both the sheep and the cattle. Can you imagine the sheep and the cattle getting to go free? <laughs> <laughs> and I like to think that he opened the cages of the doves and let them go. It's almost, um, it reminds me of that scripture where he says that he sets the captives free. In a, in a sense, but I also get the sense that in this, that he's still continuing along the lines of creation, mm. so to speak. Because um, we said before that there was creation, the water, the wine, and then here he's talking about the temple. And I guess you can see a reverse process of creation and how it degrades. And then he says that he'll build it back up. And he does that the same along with us. I mean, it continues along in chapter 3, reverses, in terms of being born again. And so there's like a recreation process. That he's well, the temple, the original temple, was was patterned after creation. A number of Old Testament scholars point that out. That uh, you, there's a lot of links between the, the construction of the temple uh, in Torah and the uh, Genesis one, and actually Genesis two. 
So it, it, it is, when you talk temple, you're talking creation to begin with. And then Jesus says, uh, you destroy this temple. You destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Uh, he's talking initially about his body on one level. On another level, he's talking about the temple that John mentioned. And, um, and certainly he did raise up his disciples after three days. I mean, they were pretty much in the tomb gloom. And, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he raised them back up, as it were. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Other gospel writers have Jesus also saying, make my house a prayer for all peoples, but you have turned into a den of thieves. And and truly that's what happened. What happened to the desecrate the temple was that uh, they decided that for people who coming for Passover, for example, I often came from a great distance because the, the diaspora, they had to they had to bring their animals with them. And that was costly because if those animals were blemished when they got to the temple, then the priest said, sorry, you can't offer that animal. Then they had to get one from somewhere. So it was just almost prohibitive to drag your animal with you. And so it was just better to buy it in Jerusalem. So they took advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Developed this marketplace and to always greedy for money, they decided that uh, they couldn't just buy it with regular money. I mean, after all, they had they had foreign money bringing bringing with them. They might have Roman money, but that wasn't adequate. They had they had to buy it through the temple shekel, which meant that you had to exchange the Roman money for temple shekels, and that's where extortion took place because they the rate of exchange was just exorbitant. And there were angry disputes and, and people uh, getting very heated on both sides of the table. Uh, I think all three uh, accounts of the story talk about the money changers. The, those are the tables that Jesus tipped over. <laughs> Let their coins go on, on the floor. So... That's what was happening. And Ellen White adds something to the picture. And when Jesus came to this and saw this scene, his heart went out to the poor who thought that without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sin. It suggests that the whole sacrificial system had become simply a means to appease Yahweh's wrath. Getting good with him and procure his forgiveness. When in truth, we noted in Exodus twenty, Exodus thirty-three and thirty-four, God is one who forgives. You can't purchase that. What has happened is that the shedding of blood, rightly understood, brings us an access to accepting that forgiveness, which won't do us any good unless we accept it. So, this is a this is a a, a, a frame, you know, to Jesus' life. He does this act twice. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, in the last week. So this is this is the bookends. 
of Jesus' life. How significant is this, particularly for the plan of salvation? If Jesus is restoring the creation order, it suggests that he's taking it down, the three models that Babylonia installed in everybody's mind. I've just ordered a book on it's it's the result of a symposium in which different people presented papers and so it 